0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: Doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope everyone out there who's listening, hope you're all doing as fantastic as I'm feeling. I am very excited about bringing new guests to our listeners' ears, especially when we make these new friends and we hit it off. We have a really good rapport with the upcoming guest. But Tim, I want to have a good rapport with you. And in order to do so, I need to know how you're doing. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing
0: great. Thanks a lot for asking. I appreciate the buildup there. Yeah, we had a, a great conversation with a fellow podcast host. His name is Gavin Whitehead, and he does a great show called The Art of Crime Podcast. In this conversation, we spoke about a lot of things, but mostly Jack the Ripper.
1: And in this conversation with Gavin, I told a quick story about the time when I was working at a restaurant in Boston and my fellow co worker dressed up as Abraham Lincoln for Halloween and I dressed up as John Wilkes Booth. Now, I hadn't spoken with this person in over a decade and I reached out to him to see if he had this picture that existed of me and him in a pose representing John Wilkes Booth and Abraham Lincoln. And remarkably, he gets back to me and even more remarkably, he has. As the picture. For those who are listening to this episode, once you hear us reference that picture, it is featured in the YouTube video, and it is of me as John Wilkes Booth aiming a fake pistol at my co worker dressed as Abraham Lincoln as he is simulating watching our American cousin. So, a big thank you to my former co worker for coming through in the clutch for us for this episode. <laughs> Wow.
0: Well, uh, yeah, listeners, make sure to uh, check that out. That's going to be posted on our social media pages as well. So you can find that at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod.
1: And it's pretty challenging to cover a case like the Whitechapel murders, Jack the Ripper. But Gavin does a really good job because he takes the approach of linking it to artists that might have been involved with this. And I had no idea about this uh, Lewis Carroll, the actor Richard Mansfield and the artist, Walter Snickert. Gavin breaks down the reasons, conspiracies, and theories behind those, and Gavin knows what he's talking about.
0: And if you think we know what we're talking about, check out our weekly bonus show. It's available at CrawlSpace Premium, now available on Apple Podcasts. Sign up for $4.99 a month. You get ad-free episodes, early releases, and that aforementioned weekly bonus show that everybody loves. And if you're not an Apple user, go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We'll be right back with Gavin.
1: and a thank you to our sponsors.
0: Back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, Gavin Whitehead of The
2: Art of Crime. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. How are you two? We're doing great, and I'm doing even better after seeing your shirt. Listeners cannot see the shirt, but they should know that I have a pretty psychedelic, lava-patterned shirt on right now, just for good luck.
1: You're going to need it for this interview.
2: That's what I've heard.
1: That's the word (laughs) on
2: the internet. People are like, don't go on Crawl Space. They'll tear you apart.
1: Start with your shirt and we'll go from there. (laughs) That's
2: right. (laughs) I thought you were complimenting my shirt, but now you're going to tell me how ugly it is.
1: (laughs) I love it. I wish I had the same shirt, but the inverse of colors.
2: Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. I think we could be like a terrible duo if we had that shirt combination. I think we could fight crime. I don't know, maybe pass some legislation. I'm not sure what we would do, but we would work great together.
1: We could fight the mastermind Massachusetts mangler that is Tim Poliri. Yes. There's no
0: messing with the the Massachusetts mangler who just mangled that.
1: Yeah. All
0: right. Well, welcome to the show. You do a great podcast. Can you tell us about your
2: podcast? Sure. I would love to. So my podcast is called The Art of Crime. Uh, The tagline is that it's a history podcast about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. I think of it as an educational podcast. It's meant to teach listeners about, yes, true crime, but society and culture as well. If you check it out, you should plan to learn a lot about historical crimes as well as artists and their art.
1: And is this something that you've always been interested in, both in column A being the true crime category and art being the column B category?
2: Yeah, good question. I've always had a casual interest in true crime so for example i was really fascinated by the serial killer Jack the Ripper from an early age. We can talk about that later since I've covered the infamous Whitechapel murders on my show. And I have loved books like The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, which y'all too, which y'all might have read. I would really compare my podcast to a book like that, or maybe The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher by Kate Summerscale, because there's a lot of true crime in those books, but there's also a lot about history and culture. So, yes, I've had an interest in true crime for a while, but I really have a background. In the arts. So in a past life, I was a theater historian. That past life ended about a year ago, and I went into podcasting and started this show. I'm a musician. I play drums. I've acted. I have directed. I've translated plays. And as I just mentioned, I used to work as a theater historian. So I have a background in theater and music. Yeah, I've always loved the arts. And this show became a way of merging the two.
0: Yeah, tell us more about your past life as a theater historian and I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that is.
2: So I went to grad school for many, many years. And when I was in grad school, I wrote a dissertation on horror theater in London from 1794 to 1931. So basically I was looking at vampire and Frankenstein plays, which were all the rage in like the 1820s in London. I also looked at a lot of ghost scenes, which were hugely popular throughout the sort of long 19th century that I studied. Of course, I looked at the emergence of early Hollywood cinema as well. There's actually a true crime connection here. So in my research project, I wrote an entire chapter about the popularity of true crime entertainment in like the 1820s, 30s and 40s, because it was enormously popular among Britons at the time, and also enormously controversial among Britons at the time. And so to give one example... We asked about theater history, you know, what a theater historian is. So I describe and interpret the theatrical past. So to give an example here, there was a really notorious play called The Gamblers, which was inspired by a crime committed in real life. A man named John Thurtell, murdered in 1823, I believe. It's a brutal murder. They were riding out to the countryside in a horse-drawn carriage. John Thurtell shot William Ware, who leapt out of the carriage. And then John Thurtell gave him chase and clubbed him to death with his pistol and then cut his throat. The public caught wind of it and it became this huge media sensation, partly because of the brutality of the murder, but also because the men involved in the murder were gamblers. So there was this kind of tie to the seedy underworld of London as well. So it it sort of added to the sensationalism of the entire story. The public was obsessed with all of this and theater managers wanted to capitalize on that. So some playwright who remains anonymous wrote a play inspired by this homicide, like literally literally two weeks after the crime had been committed. I mean, it was like that, just slap the play together. And they not only reenacted the crime almost exactly as it had happened on that trail to a cottage out in the countryside, but, and this is the real kicker, the theater manager (laughs) went to the trouble of procuring the actual carriage that John Thurtell and William Ware were in at the time of the murder. And they brought it on stage as part of the reenactment of the homicide. And some audience members applauded this. Others found it absolutely loathsome and immoral, partly because John Thurtell, the murderer, had not yet gone to trial. This, to critics, seemed like a violation of due process. It seemed to critics, like, the theater managers and the playwright were assuming that John Thurtell was guilty of this crime before he had had his day in court. So it caused this huge firestorm in the media, and the theater had to shut the play down after just two nights in compliance with a court order, because they were like, we're coming for you if you do not get this off the stage right now. And then, of course, after John Thurtell went to trial, he was obviously guilty and was found guilty. Boom, like that, they start staging the play again with similar gimmicks. That's an example of kind of true crime theater. So part of what I did as a historian was to reconstruct the reenactment of that stage and also study the reception of this play as well as the crime. So I'm trying to find out what people were saying and why they were responding to it the way they were. But I also wanted to study the afterlife of this production because people talked about it for decades afterwards and they often pointed to it as like one of the most heinous offenses of 19th century playmaking it, it just struck some critics as so immoral to reenact this cold-blooded killing and profit on it essentially by selling tickets to playgoers
1: i thought you were just going to say john wilkes booth and then we would move on
2: <laughs> well we could talk about john wilkes booth because yeah i'm gonna cover him in the second season of my show i'm really excited about those episodes
1: okay give us yeah give us a, a little john wilkes booth
2: Let's do it. Okay, so I think I forgot to mention when describing my show that it comes out in seasons and each season is structured around a different theme. So season one is titled The Unusual Suspects, Artists Accused of Being Jack the Ripper. Season two is called Assassins. It explores artists who have committed, attempted, or at least been implicated in assassinations. So John Wilkes Booth, of course, is the big name of the second season. The season wraps up with a two-part series on John Wilkes Booth. So I studied theater history, and I was surprised actually by how little I knew about John Wilkes Booth as an actor. Here's an interesting fact for you. John Wilkes Booth, as most people know, was an actor. He also happened to shoot Abraham Lincoln at a theater, Ford's in Washington, D.C., while he was watching a play, Our American Cousin, by Tom Taylor. Oh, did... whoa,
1: whoa, no spoilers.
2: It ha- Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody's going to listen to the episodes now. It doesn't have a happy ending. But anyway, so what I did not realize about John Wilkes Booth is that he belonged to the most famous theatrical dynasty in the country at the time. His father... Junius Brutus Booth was the single most famous Shakespearean at one point in time on the American stage. He was like I don't know, the Meryl Streep of the early 19th century. Like, everybody knew he was the best. You could not outdo Junius Brutus Booth.
1: I'm sorry, and what's his name? Can you say his name again? I That's can, an incredible name.
2: It is a great name, right? I mean, you have to, like, back up a name like that with serious talent. You you kind of have to earn <laughs> it. But it was Junius Brutus Booth. Wow. Yeah, and of course, Brutus is one of the assassins of Julius Caesar. So there's, you know, a kind of tie to a historical assassination embedded within the name of John Wilkes Booth's father, uh, which is intriguing. But anyway, Junius Brutus Booth fathered three sons who went into theater as well. They were Junius Brutus Jr., Edwin Booth, and John Wilkes Booth. So we're, we're dealing with like a theatrical dynasty here. It's just amazing because basically before 1865, the name of Booth belonged to some of the most famous performers in the entire country. And then, of course, as we know, John Wilkes Booth assassinates Abraham Lincoln in April of 1865. And then, boom, overnight, the name of Booth belongs to the most infamous criminal in the entire country. It just shattered the family reputation really in an instant. And it took quite some time for both John Wilkes Booth's brothers to recover, as well as his sister Asia Booth Clark. There's really a family drama that surrounds the assassination that is really compelling as well. And also, I would add that John Wilkes Booth was, by all indications, a talented actor. He was really on the way to becoming one of the greats on stage. He was especially good at sword play. You know, everybody loves a sword fight, right? He was like one of the best duelists on the American stage. And he was also great with costuming and makeup and uh, set design. So. He really had shown a lot of talent before he retired from the stage in 1864, at which time he started to plan a conspiracy against Lincoln. Jeez.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's interesting stuff, though. I had no idea that he was uh,
1: such a good actor.
2: No, there's a lot to the story. Like I said, I kind of studied this period, and I had so much to learn about it as I was putting together the episodes.
1: Do you ever get surprised because you have this education in theater history when you're looking at situations like this where you thought, well, I didn't think that this would be as intricate as it is?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was aware of Edwin Booth, John Wilkes Booth's brother, because he really went on to achieve superstardom even after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Although, you know, his family ties to the assassin always haunted him on stage. And, you know, he became one of the most significant actors of the 19th century. But I did not realize how famous John Wilkes Booth's father was. I didn't know that John Wilkes Booth was a talented actor. He played a variety of parts, but he was really well known for one of Shakespeare's most famous roles, Richard III. Richard Third was a medieval king who was just deliciously nasty. I mean, the, he's like one of the great villains in Shakespeare's plays. In the 19th century, he was considered one of the great roles up there with Hamlet and Macbeth and Romeo and Othello. I think he's maybe lesser known today than he was back then. But anyway, he was a really important role. And John Wilkes Booth was considered like the Richard III on the American stage at the height of his acting career. So I had no idea about that going into this research. So yeah, it is. It's always a pleasure to be surprised by how little I know about anything.
1: Fun fact before we move on, I once went as John Wilkes booth for Halloween. I worked at a restaurant and the front of the house manager was very tall. I was <laughs> a bar manager at the time, and we were talking about what we should do for Halloween, and he was like, If I if I dress as Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> will you be John Wilkes Booth? Oh my god. And I was god. like, Yes, that's brilliant. Love and it. There's a picture that's floating out there of him seated in this like tiered area of the restaurant. It was a restaurant that had like a One level, and then you could do like three steps up. So it does look like he's sitting in a theater, and I'm behind him with this like fake gun. It's a great
2: Wow. It's awesome. Wow. If I find it, I'll send it to you. Please do. I'll put it on the website.
0: Well, Gavin, I would love to talk about your season one, which talks a bit about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders and looks at potential suspects. Can you tell us a little bit about the Whitechapel murders?
2: Sure. Jack the Ripper murdered at least five women in the poverty-stricken district of Whitechapel, East London, in 1888. These five women's names are Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Collectively, they're known as the quote-unquote canonical five ripper victims they're called the canonical victims because earlier and later homicides have been attributed to jack the ripper but those have been disputed most researchers today agree that the quote-unquote canonical victims died at the hands of this murderer the crimes were absolutely horrendous he slashed the throat of each victim In four out of five cases, he mutilated the victim's body, disemboweling them and at times removing internal organs and perhaps taking those organs with him as he fled the crime scene. The Whitechapel murders caused this gigantic media sensation, partly because the murders were just so brutal and so horrendous, but also because they took place in Whitechapel. What happened was that as policemen and journalists investigated the victim's activities leading up to their deaths, they began to understand more about the conditions that the poor of London live in on a daily basis. I mean, these women came from a poverty that almost defies description. It's certainly beyond anything I personally can imagine. It was just a hand-to-mouth existence. You know, they would wake up every morning not always knowing where they would sleep that night, so sometimes they were out on the streets. All five of the canonical victims had serious problems with alcoholism, because that was part of how working class men and women sort of coped with the harsh realities of life at that time. So anyway, the poverty that hung over all these murders sort of increased the media attention. And then, of course, things got even crazier when supposedly the murderer started mailing in letters to the police, taunting them and sort of gloating about how brilliant and nasty he was. The first letter is called the Dear Boss Letter, and the quote-unquote trade name Jack the Ripper originates in this letter. This arrives at the police about midway through the crime spree it was publicized and then suddenly a bunch of other people were (laughs) writing into the police claiming to be jack the ripper this body of text is called the ripper correspondence there's a lot of disagreement among researchers today as to how much of it is genuine if any of it is genuine the ripper correspondence certainly intensified media frenzy at the time but just to be clear There's a lot of doubt as to whether any of these letters and packages came from the actual murder. So that should suffice as a sort of background, as a kind of overview of the Whitechapel murders. The murders were never solved. The killer is known as Jack the Ripper because no one knows who committed these crimes after the fifth quote unquote canonical murder they just came to a stop and nobody really knows why the Whitechapel murders are sort of like the ultimate true crime mystery and they have just generated pages and pages and pages and pages of information
1: i am always impressed with people who have the knowledge like you do to back up that question you know can you tell us a little bit about jack the ripper because it's such a huge true crime story Right. You just explained this. And there were so many times when I was like, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. I had no idea about that. I think it's daunting for me personally to, to dig into it any deeper than just the surface level stuff. So do you find it to be the case when you take on a very extravagant true crime story?
2: Yes, absolutely. It's part of why making this first season was so challenging. It was certainly daunting when I undertook this project because I Sort of knew the basics about Jack the Ripper, but I had never done a deep dive until I put together this podcast. I tell you, virtually no one agrees on anything in these cases. It is so tricky. Every time you make a claim or just think that you're stating a fact about the Whitechapel murders, you have to check it against multiple sources to make sure that you're being accurate. That was a major challenge throughout the season. I
0: imagine this is just so much information. your scripts, which you, you know your your transcripts are are there on the website and they're uh, very dense and uh, informative. But specifically, you were you have been focusing on artists who were suspected or potentially suspected as being Jack the Ripper uh, himself.
2: Yeah, the season is titled The Unusual Suspects, Artists Accused of Being Jack the Ripper, and it, it profiles a total of six artists who have been named as suspects over the years.
0: So what gave you that idea to focus specifically on artists as potential suspects?
2: I had the idea for this podcast, I knew I wanted to write about the quote-unquote unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts, and I was sort of casting about for ideas from my first season, I happened to know that somewhere along the way, someone named Lewis Carroll, author of Alice in Wonderland, as a suspect in the Whitechapel murders. And I didn't know anything About the theory, beyond the fact that it's often held up as, like, you know, the silliest Ripper theory ever put forward. But I happen to know about it. I also happen to know from my research as a theater historian that the American actor Richard Mansfield, who originated the dual role of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and was playing it in London at the time of the killing spree, was also named as a suspect in the Whitechapel murders in 1888. So I knew about these two unusual suspects, and I just asked myself i wonder if there are any more out there and i just sat down at the computer and lo and behold i found four more and i could have included more in the season than i did i decided just to stick with six because it was the first season and already an enormous undertaking for a podcasting novice such as myself and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors thanks
0: to our sponsors and now we're back to the program
1: that's a really uh, great episode that you have about the uh, Richard Mansfield connection and the Jekyll and Hyde. And I'm curious if, like, someone who can portray Jekyll and Hyde and make that duality happen on stage night after night might be influenced by that and think maybe this is something that they're capable of doing off the stage.
2: That is the almost the exact question that Mansfield's accuser is raising at the time. So Richard Mansfield... When he played Jekyll and Hyde, he was giving like the horror performance of a generation. We're talking like Jack Nicholson in The Shining or Anthony Perkins in Psycho. I mean, this is like grade A horror fare. He was absolutely terrifying as Hyde. There's a murder scene in the play where Hyde leaps at this veteran and strangles him on stage. And (sighs) Manseel was apparently so terrifying at this juncture in the plot that men and women were literally swooning in the in the playhouse they were just like overcome with terror richard mansfield's accuser whose name is unknown to us wrote a letter to the city of london police naming richard mansfield as a suspect and part of his accusation is that he was just so convincing in this terrifying murder scene that i mean if he could do it on stage then He must be able to carry it out in real life. He must be capable of that kind of violence in reality. This thinking doesn't bear a ton of scrutiny because Anthony Hopkins, who played Hannibal Lecter, like, as far as we know, has never cannibalized anybody, right? You can play a villain on the stage or the screen without being a monster in real life. But yeah, I mean this this kind of thinking was definitely part of the accusation. I mean he was Mansfield was just so convincing in this role. As someone who studied
0: acting, I almost take offense to this, you know, because he's so good. If he's so good, like and he's blowing people's minds that you must think, you know, he's gotta
2: be a real murderer if he's That's that right.
0: convincing. Like this is what you get
2: for being good at your job. You're accused <laughs> of serial murder. <laughs>
0: Yeah. No awards. You're just
2: a suspect. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Poor guy. I know. Poor Richard Mansfield. It worked out all right for him in the end, but actually not in London. He had a tough time in London, but afterwards, you know, he skyrocketed to the stratosphere and became one of the most famous actors in America. Although most of us don't know his name today, myself included. I knew very little about him before I started making The Unusual Suspects, apart from this accusation.
1: Well, I, I think it's Lewis Carroll.
2: Oh, well, I mean, it, it. it is. It is Lewis Carroll. Yes.
1: <laughs> if you read between the lines of Alice in Wonderland, it's basically a confession letter. Exactly. Well, you're not too far off, right?
2: The Queen of Hearts is a pretty nasty character. You know, there's she's got some homicidal tendencies going on there.
0: But are there connections between Carroll's writings and the Jack the Ripper letters?
2: This is what... Carroll's accuser, Richard Wallace, argues. Richard Wallace claims to have found anagrams hidden in Lewis Carroll's writing, including Alice in Wonderland, or a, a version of Alice in Wonderland called The Nursery Alice, which came out in the late 1880s. And these anagrams are confessions to the Whitechapel murders. So he's found these incriminating anagrams in Lewis Carroll's writing, and he's also looked at the Ripper correspondence for similar anagrams, and lo and behold, he found them. Maybe one thing to note is that Lewis Carroll was actually really good at anagrams. He had mastered that subtle art, for sure. I'll give you an example. Y'all might have heard of Florence Nightingale. She was a prominent nurse in the mid-19th century. She worked in the Crimean War, which took place in the 1850s. And she really turned nursing into a respectable profession during this conflict and professionalized it, really. She made improvements to hygiene and she would also go on to establish a school for nursing. Beforehand, nursing had not really been seen as a good line of work to go into. So she changed that entirely. So Lewis Carroll takes Florence Nightingale's name and rearranges the letters in it to create a new message. And that message is flit on flit being like fly on, flit on cheering angel. And I just think that is so clever because not only has he rearranged all the letters, right, to create this, message, which makes perfect sense, but a nightingale's a bird, obviously. Birds have wings and can fly, and he's obviously playing on that idea by telling, you know, Florence Nightingale to fly on as an angel, another winged being, right? And of course, Florence Nightingale is also angelic because she provided care for wounded soldiers as a nurse. So the anagram just works on so many levels and is really clever. We notice a marked decline in the quality of anagrams when we look at the ones Richard Wallace claims to have found in Carol's Writing. So Richard Wallace looks at the Nursery Alice, which came out just after the Whitechapel murders. I actually have one of the passages. This is a version of Alice in Wonderland that was intended for children five and under. So it's sort of a new version of an already beloved children's book. So basically, there are a set of playing cards whom we meet, and they work for the Queen of Hearts. And the Queen of Hearts has ordered them to paint some roses in a tree. So this is one of the playing cards speaking. You see, there were five large white roses on the tree. Such a job to get them all painted red. But they've got three and a half done now. And if only they wouldn't stop to talk work away, little men, do work away, or the queen will be coming before it's done. And if she finds any white roses on the tree, do you know what will happen? It will be off with their heads. Oh, work away, work away, little men, hurry, hurry. This passage accompanies an image in the nursery Alice. And in that image, there are six roses on the tree instead of five, which is what is described in the passage. So this sets off alarm bells for Richard Wallace. This is not an oversight, according to Wallace. This is a clue that the passage is, in fact, an anagram. The letters need to be reshuffled to reveal a hidden message. So Richard Wallace does that, and here's what he comes up with. What you need to know going into this is that Lewis Carroll was a pen name. His given name was actually Charles Dodgson. Wallace seems to suggest that Carroll carried out these crimes with at least one accomplice named Bain who worked with him. Lewis Carroll was uh, a math professor at Oxford, by the way, when he wasn't writing Alice in Wonderland. So we're going to hear Dodgson and Bain in this anagrammatic solution. The conventional wisdom is that all five of the canonical victims were working as prostitutes when uh, the killer struck. So we're going to hear about, quote-unquote, street whores in this passage. Quote, Dodgson, i.e. Carroll, And bane, seethe, tune, hone a weird way. Anyway, to laud my father's holy work and let the hate vent. We plot how to kill dirty women knife to throat. You see, to them, it is such a large job to get five street whores all painted red. If I find one street whore, you know what will happen. She'll be off with her head, work away, hurry, hurry, or the queen's little men will be coming before he's done, unquote. That comes from Lighthearted Friend by Richard Wallace. That is an anagram that Wallace claims to have discovered in the nursery Alice. Do you know how long that must have taken him? He must have had a lot of time on his hands. It's true. Because he didn't nail that the first
1: time. You know, he's going through like thousands <laughs> of right. combinations of That's letters. Right. And...
2: I'm sure we're looking at draft number like
0: 15. Yeah. So what do you make of that? I, I mean, I'm not sure how I feel about it. It seems like obviously challenging to make an accurate anagram, but do you think Carol really intended uh, to put, you know, a code in there?
2: No, I definitely am unconvinced. (laughs) As soon as this book came out, academics sort of tore it apart, as did members of the general public. It got a truly... Truly brutal reception. And understandably so. I talk about this a bit on the podcast. If you have enough letters to work with, you can arrange them to say whatever you want, pretty much. That's just sort of how language works, right? If for whatever reason you want to pin the Whitechapel murders on Lewis Carroll (laughs) and you take a passage from his work, you will have enough letters to rearrange them into a murder confession that's because you're just you can manipulate language like that anyone can do it so you know i could take this same passage from carol and rearrange the letters to say some other hidden message and why would my message be any more valid or less valid than richard wallace's hidden message anyone could just have their way with this passage and come up with a million different anagrammatic solutions so
1: you're pointing the finger at wallace
2: well, I have not personally, but others have. So this is part of this brutal takedown that I was talking about. An excerpt of his book was published in Harper shortly after it came out. And a couple of pranksters read this article and took the first five or six sentences, maybe, and then rearranged all of the letters in those sentences to accuse Richard Wallace of basically murdering Nicole Brown Simpson— And in this confession, you know, Richard Wallace, quote unquote, claims that O.J. Simpson had nothing to do with it and that he was totally innocent. I mean, these pranksters basically illustrate what I was talking about. You can rearrange letters to say whatever you want them to. It doesn't prove anything.
0: Yeah, I'm going to make a podcast episode with all the things Lance has said over the years and uh, make him out to be Jack the Ripper. Go for it. You could do that, though.
2: I've come across more unlikely suspects. So the theory is pretty bonkers in itself. But the Lewis Carroll episode, I would say is interesting, because as I've said at several points in this interview, I really go into the artist and his life. And Lewis Carroll has a pretty remarkable biography. And there's quite a story to be told about his relationship with Alice Liddell, who to some degree inspired the fictional Alice. So that story is part of the episode as well. It's part of how I weave the artist's biography and the theories together
0: now what about arthur conan doyle
2: arthur conan doyle interesting everyone wanted to know what arthur conan doyle has to say about this crime spree because he came up with sherlock holmes and sherlock holmes can solve any mystery right one of the main contributions i would say i've made to the conversation about jack the ripper is uh what i call the disguise hypothesis so this is an argument that comes up over and over and over again in writing about jack the ripper it basically holds that jack the ripper evaded detection outran the law got away with the crimes by altering his appearance while committing them the disguise hypothesis is what we return to again and again over the course of the season arthur conan doyle offers a different version of the disguise hypothesis so he is said by his son to have believed that Jack the Ripper disguised himself as a woman while committing the murders. And this was not so that he could, like evade detection in some way, it was so that he could gain the confidence of his victims because women were on the lookout for suspicious men at the time of the crimes. Everyone read about these murders in the newspaper. They knew that a serial killer was stalking the streets of Whitechapel. And so women would travel in groups and stay off the streets as much as they could, if they could. But... Conan Doyle's thinking seems to go, they would feel more comfortable around a stranger if that stranger was a woman or at least appeared to be a woman. Doyle's argument is that the Ripper donned female attire and then approached the victims and then somehow lured them to a secluded area where he could then kill them. So he's part of this disguise hypothesis, although he offers sort of a different version of it.
1: Fun fact, if you rearrange his letters author conan doyle yes you get rich slayer not around
2: i mean that's true i mean i mean he's not around Uh, my question is who has he slain the readers the readers
1: with his sharp wit
2: with his genius he's 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 killed us all dead yeah (laughs) case closed (laughs) he was rich um and he's not around anymore and I'm I'm left shattered by his genius every time I finish a Sherlock Holmes adventure. So, yeah, I think I think you nailed it.
0: We'll be right back
1: after a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program.
2: Now, you had a game that you wanted to play with us. Sure, we can play this game. Why don't we do that? One of the most famous unusual suspects is named Walter Sickert. Walter Sickert is considered one of the most significant British painters of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and he's gotten a lot of attention as a Ripper suspect. So all of this goes back to the mid-1970s with the publication of a book called Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, published by a journalist named Stephen Knight. Since the publication of this book, Sickert has never really gone away from ripperology. In fact, two subsequent authors have come forward and written books about how they allege he... Committed these murders. One of them would be Patricia Cornwell, the famous crime writer who has named Sickert as the killer in two editions of one book. And I should say that although Sickert is a suspect who has gotten a lot of attention in the Ripper killings, scholars of Walter Sickert who have dedicated their lives to the study of him and his work roundly dismiss these accusations, as do um, so called ripperologists, partly because there's pretty good evidence to suggest that that Walter Sickert was out of the country at the time of several of these murders, which would make it difficult to have committed them. The Sickert theory goes back to Stephen Knight's book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. And I'm going to simplify this radically just for the sake of simplicity. But if you want to know the full story, you can go check out the episode on Walter Sickert. Basically, Stephen Knight argues that Jack the Ripper was not one man, but three. Basically, there was this unholy trinity Riding around London in a carriage committing these murders. One of these guys riding around in that carriage was named Sir William Gull. He was Queen Victoria's physician in ordinary. So he worked for the crown. He had supposedly the medical knowledge to perform the mutilations that the Ripper victims were subject to. Another one of those guys riding around in the carriage was Walter Sickert. So he. Never actually wielded the blade, according to Stephen Knight, but he witnessed all of these crimes himself. So we're going to play this game. We're going to test your sleuthing abilities. So one of Knight's contentions is that Walter Sickert hid clues in his paintings about the ripper's true identity. And if only you look hard enough, you can uncover them. So I thought, let's see if these guys can discover the clue in Ennui by Walter Sickert. Ennui is one of his most famous paintings, and you can check it out on the Art of Crime website. You're looking at it now. I've given you all the information you need to Identify the clue. Don't read the caption because I think I explain it there. So just, just look at the picture. Maybe you can tell listeners what you're seeing.
1: Okay, so the, the painting on is an older gentleman sitting at a table smoking a cigar, I'm guessing. There's like a glass of water on, on this circular table. Looks like a book of matches. Uh, there's a woman in the background resting her head on her hand uh, her while leaning against a bureau. Pretty, yes. pretty good description so far. Yeah, yes. pretty
0: good so far. Huge glass of water on the table, uh, painting on the wall.
2: Okay, okay.
0: Wine in a decanter.
1: Yep, looks okay. like a decanter on a on a mantle. Okay. Okay. Um, what is that thing that looks like to the, the left of the, the woman?
0: Rose. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like the rose from Beauty of the Beast in yeah in like a, <laughs> like a glass like that glass thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Is it a bird cage? I do believe
2: it's a bird cage. I think they're stuffed birds.
1: The painting on the wall above the woman kind of looks like an indigenous person with a dove on its shoulder. Okay, so that's that's us describing the painting, but there's a clue in here.
2: There's a clue in here about the Ripper, the Ripper's true identity, according to Stephen Knight, and I've given you all the information you need. I don't
0: see it. It's not. It's not slapping me in the face. Yeah. There's a
1: copy of Alice in Wonderland.
2: <laughs> Inside the Bureau. You need x-ray vision, but it's in there. And if you read it carefully enough, it exposes Walter Sickert as a witness to all the Whitechapel murders. Um, no, I, this is cruel. This I'm just being cruel because this is impossible. It's impo- I've given you an impossible task and thank you for being such good sports. So before I crack the code for you, why don't I tell you, A little bit about the historical significance of this painting. So it's one of Sickert's most famous. Before he painted this, he had done a series of other images, all of which had one man and one woman, one of them seated and the other one standing. And he was creating a set of compositional guidelines for himself. And what he wanted to do was convey a sense of extreme psychological tension between these figures based entirely on their placement within the painting right because all we have to go on is the visual right and you can tell by looking at this couple that they don't look super thrilled about their lives in fact that the painting is titled Ennui. so yeah they're not looking super happy this is what secret experts have to say about on but what does stephen knight have to say about on well according to stephen knight the man and woman are completely inconsequential. They're misdirect. They're completely unimportant. What matters to Stephen Knight is the picture within the picture. So you mentioned in the background, there's a picture of a woman with a bird on her shoulder. That woman is supposedly Queen Victoria, and that bird, according to Stephen Knight, is supposedly a gull. As in Sir William Gull Queen Victoria's physician who committed the murders in that carriage as he and two other guys were racing around London, getting up to no good. So, yeah, there you have it. That goal refers to Sir William Goal.
1: If you'd given me 30 more seconds, mm. I would have gotten there. I know.
2: <laughs> you would have gotten there. It's. <laughs> but, yeah, that's Stephen Knight's. It's very Da Vinci Code, right? I mean, this, this, yeah. this idea yeah. Yeah. that if you just study the paintings hard enough, you can discern the all-important clue. Everything about Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, has been dismissed, if not debunked entirely, the source for the story came forward and called it a fib after the book's publication.
0: I, I'm not offended as I was with uh with the actor, <laughs> but I just feel like if you look at any kind of art long enough, you can see whatever the hell you want. And that is kind of the point of art, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's
2: subjective, right?
1: I am offended. <laughs> Why are you so offended? As a podcaster, I need answers. You need answers, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I didn't know where I was going when I started that sentence.
2: Well, I think it's yeah, and and Stephen Knight has not given you the answer. He's given you answers, but they they're not to your or anyone else's liking. I guess I will say that even though the final solution has been sort of dismissed, it is probably the single most influential book about the Ripper killings, at least when it comes to cultural depictions of Jack the Ripper. So I didn't even get into this in my synopsis, but there's also a theory that the Freemasons were involved in covering up these crimes and that Jack the Ripper was actually sort of perverting Masonic ritual in the way that he murdered his victims. We're not going to get into that right now, But this idea of Freemasonic involvement has hung around. And I don't know if y'all ever saw the movie From Hell with Johnny Depp and Heather Graham. There's a Freemasonic connection there. There's an awesome Ripper movie called Murder by Decree, directed by Bob Clark. I think it came out in the late 70s. It is actually an amazing film. And I am not even kidding you. It's a Sherlock Holmes adventure where... Watson and Holmes Solve the Whitechapel Murders. And it is great. Uh, Christopher Plummer plays Sherlock Holmes. And there's a Masonic connection there as well. The free Masonic theory just, it keeps coming up. So what do you think happened then? I'm going to offend you um, because (laughs) I do not have an answer. I don't know who committed the Whitechapel murders. I sort of cop to this at the end of the season. I'm just like, I don't know who Jack the Ripper was. I don't think we'll ever solve these murders until the advent of time travel when we can go back and see who committed them. In that case, maybe we should like go back and prevent the murders. That would be my suggestion. I think too much time has passed. Too much evidence has gone missing. It's possible that Jack the Ripper was not a famous artist like Lewis Carroll or Richard Mansfield or Walter Sickert, but was just some guy perhaps from Whitechapel or somewhere else in London. The fact of the matter is that, you know, some guy from Whitechapel is not an individual who is well documented. Like we don't know anything where we know very little about a lot of common people who were living in the Victorian period. So I think it's going to be really hard to identify possible suspects who are poorly documented the way so many members of the British population were back then.
1: Well, we're going to take the transcript from this episode and everything that you said, we're going to run that through. Actually, we're not going to run it through an anagram (laughs) generator. We're going to manually anagram it and... We're going to discover that all of your ancestors are responsible for all of these crimes.
2: They all banded together. That's great. I mean, you have the conspiracy theory angle. I love what I'm hearing. But if I could be so bold as to offer a piece of feedback, please try and work in a royal connection, a prince, a princess, Queen Victoria, possibly. I think that would make make it a juicier allegation. That's my hot take. Yeah. We'll
0: take the advice. No no promise that that's going to be part of this uh, storyline, but a uh, good chance, I'd say. Definitely gets, uh, gets media attention.
2: There's no such thing as bad publicity. <laughs>
0: well, Gavin, this has been a lot of fun chatting with you here today. We really appreciate your time. Tell us, wh- what is the name of your site and what else is coming up on Art of Crime?
2: The website is www.artofcrimepodcast.com. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram as well and on YouTube. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Probably everyone knows the spiel. So, I'm in the middle of my second season, which is all about assassins, and I'm pretty excited by what's coming up. So, I talked about John Wilkes Booth. Uh we're going to finish out the season with a two-part episode on him. Right now, I'm in the middle of a two-part episode on the Roman emperor Nero, who had his own mother assassinated. It's one of the most, you know, notorious crimes. Uh, At the time, he was also an actor and musician. I'm also going to be doing an episode on the German painter Otto Dix. He's a really fascinating figure. Uh, He served in World War I and painted just really unflinching, raw depictions of the brutality of warfare. That's part of what made him famous in the 1920s in Germany. Eventually, he ran afoul of the Nazis and sort of got blacklisted as an artist. The reason I talk about him on the podcast is because he got swept up in an investigation into an attempt on Hitler's life. This is a crazy story, and I don't want to give everything away, but it involves a carpenter named Georg Elzer who built a bomb with the intention of killing Hitler in 1939, and he came within whiskers of pulling it off. And I tell you, it is one of the wildest stories I've come across thus far. So that's just a sampling of what uh, lies in store for the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm.